Morning. Everybody wave. Yes, good. At least I start off with some smiling faces. You may get mad at me by the end of it, but at least we started out happy, right? I told them first hour, which is true this hour as well. I don't know what it is because when I go from out playing around, talking to you guys and cutting up to coming down here in the front, and about 30 seconds before it's time for me to come up, my mouth goes completely dry. Even though Beth brought me a bottle of water and I drank about that much of it, my mouth's still dry and, uh, and my palms are sweaty. So I should look them, get some water in my mouth. There's this big thing going on, and I, most of you probably know it, okay? Uh, there's this new fad, a new, new big deal, but everybody gets phones, and now their phones have cameras on them. And so they love to take pictures of themselves, and they call them selfies. You ever heard of selfie? A selfie is, you know, when you take a picture, and you usually can tell it's a selfie by, you know, you can see their arm in it, you know, or, or either it's in a mirror, and they take their picture, you know, of themselves in a the mirror. Um, you know, you can always tell when they got the arm, it means they have no friends and they have to take a picture of themselves. Um, but most of the time, selfies are accompanied by the kissy lips, you know, like duck lips. And they're not looking at the camera. They're looking somewhere else for some reason. And so I got a few of those for you guys. I want you to look at them. Here's the first one. See, look. <laughs> he, he's got the kissy lips and he's, you can't see where he's, he's got long arms, so I'm sure it's in there somewhere. Um, but he's looking the other way for some reason. All right, let's see the next one. All right, and I love this one because here's a big, strong, tough guy with a Hello Kitty camera. Do you see the Hello Kitty camera? Little pink Hello Kitty camera. I thought that was awesome. How about the next one? Here's another tough guy with a dog shirt, a big face of a dog shirt. I, I thought that was great. How about the next one? I, this is my favorite. I work with students, okay, so here's this young guy trying to be tough, with his cookie monster hat on. Do you see? His hat is a cookie monster hat, but he's trying to be all gangster. All right, let's see the next one. I, I would be mad too if my wife bought me a shirt that had cats on it. He looks angry, right? Here's another tough guy with his squirrel on his shoulder. And then the next one, the squirrel got into it. He decided to take his own picture of himself. All right, what's the next one? Horses, yeah. They like it. How about one more? Keep going. I, they were not very happy, were they? It's like, why take your picture if you're so sad? All right, go ahead. Do the next one. See, Kim and Tony, they need friends, okay? They like to take their own picture. All right, keep going. He's got this lawnmower. Hey, look, I got a lawnmower. Take... <laughs> All right. That's his business card. All right, here we go. Even the kids are getting into it. All right, what else? All right, now listen, this was actually true. She took her own picture in the ball, at a ball game, and the ball came within inches of hitting her in the head. So, yeah, she wasn't ready. She, one more. Wait, do it again. I wasn't ready. She's taking her own picture, so I, she should have been ready. All right, what's the last one? Make sure there's no camels around when you take a picture of yourself because that can be dangerous with a camel. All right. Um, just kidding around. Selfies, with the, I mean, it's true, isn't it? Our, as a culture, though, it's kind of funny, but as a culture, we're, we're really focused on ourselves, aren't we? We like to take pictures of ourselves. We like to, to post them on Facebook and Instagram and all those things. Um, but the truth is our society is very focused on me. It's a very me-focused society. But, you know, it's been that way since the beginning. God took Adam and Eve, and he placed them in the most perfect place. And they, had, they could do anything 
in this garden. They could eat anything in this place and go anywhere except the tree that they were not supposed to eat from. The tree that if they would have been obedient would have shown that they realized that God is the Lord of the universe, that God owns it all and controls it all. But Adam and Eve had a different thought. They thought, well, we could decide this for ourselves. We, we know what's best for us. We don't need God to tell us what is good and what is bad for me. So they chose, much to the joy of the serpent, to go and to eat and to claim themselves as God. And see, that battle has been raging ever since. That battle for me to be the most important, to me to be the king and the God of my life. And that battle will keep raging until the Bible tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's when that battle will stop, when God forces people to admit that God is God and they are not. Um, we're going to be, if you want to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, that's where we're going to be in the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Now, the church at Corinth, the, the, the city of Corinth, what you need to understand is that at one point, the Greeks, they came in and they conquered. Now, think about the Greeks. When they conquered, the Greeks, if you'll let me wax a little philosophical and historical here for a minute, the Greeks, when they would come in and conquer, they wouldn't just wipe out people and slaughter them. They would use just enough military force to subdue the people. And then what their goal was is to bring their culture into that place, and they would let their culture take over. And they would build libraries. They would build, is it library or library? I, you know, got to be careful there. Um, some of you teachers get on to me, library. They, they built libraries, and they put a lot of books, and their goal was to, to teach their philosophy. They would make uh, dramas and plays, and they had these big theaters where they would teach it. And their, the, the philosophy of the Greeks, if you wanted to sum it up, that their worldview is man is the measure of all things. That, is their, that was their philosophy. Man is the measure of all things. Man is superior and his accomplishments are superior. So when the Greek culture came in and they would come in and try to take over the culture that was there and teach them what they should believe based on their culture, that's, what, that's the main thing they were trying to teach them, is that man is the measure of all things. There is nothing higher than man. And another one of their major beliefs and major tenets of belief was that the body is the tomb. And what that meant to them is that the spirit and the body were not connected. The body was just something that housed the spirit. The body didn't really affect the spirit at all. So whatever they did to the body really was really disconnected from what happened in their spirit. So here you've got Paul who comes into this, this town, this city of Corinth, who had been taken over by the Greeks, and, then, and they call it Hellenized. It had been Hellenized, or I call it Greekified. It had been, it had been, the Greek culture had been spread, and the people had bought into it. And so Paul comes in, and now the Romans had taken it over, but the Greeks actually conquered the Romans, not militarily, but through their culture because the Romans bought into the Greek culture as well. So here's Paul coming into this place, and the culture there has been changed to such a way to where their main motto is man is the measure of all things. And so Paul comes in, and he preaches the gospel, and he reaches some of these people for Christ with, with a gospel message, and they start a church, and then Paul leaves. And he goes on to the next journey, to the next place where he's going to plant a church. 
Well, the, the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is Paul writing back to that young church. And that young church was not without challenges. We can find in the, in, in, in the early chapters that Paul was having to talk to them about the divisions in the church. Some would say, I follow Paul. Some would say, I follow Apollos. Some would say, I follow Christ. But see, that was part of their culture. All the different philosophers had their own schools of thought, and they would war against each other. That's part of the Greek culture. Well, that had crept into the church. And some of them were saying, well, I'm going to follow this, and I'm going to follow Paul. And Paul says, listen, it's not that way. I planted, Apollos watered, but God is what makes it grow. You guys have to understand that you're not followers of personalities and, and people. You're followers of Jesus Christ. And he also had to deal with them about their search for enlightenment. That was all about the philosophy of the day in that culture. He said, oh, I know I've got this truth, but I'm looking for a better one. And Paul goes, listen, you're wise people couldn't teach you the truth about God. It took the foolishness of the cross and the foolishness that, that, uh, that God used to teach you guys the truth when your wives couldn't even teach it. So quit looking for enlightenment because I've given you the truth. He had to deal with them with evil. They were tolerating evil. There was a man in their church that was sleeping and living with his dad's wife. And Paul says even the pagans don't allow that. But you've allowed and tolerated evil to come into the body of Christ. You've tolerated evil to come in. And from the outside, people look at that and they're appalled that even the, the church of Christ would even allow that. You cannot tolerate evil. You cannot tolerate ungodliness to creep in. Deal with it, young church. One of the things that was also happening in this church is they were suing each other in the court of law. They were getting angry with one another and they were taking that anger out into the public arena and they were bashing one another with it. And they, they were standing in front of uh, ungodly people bashing their fellow believers. And Paul says, number one, the issue is you shouldn't have all that desire in you to want to get for yourself anyhow. That's causing part of the problem. But you don't need to take it out into the public arena and bash the name of Christ. It needs to be handled in the church. It needs to be handled uh, Christian to Christian. And don't take it out and, and, and destroy the name of Christ in the community. And then he also had to deal with them uh, in this place. See, the, the gods that the Greeks created were basically in their own image. If man is the measure of all things, the gods that they created were just like them. They had weaknesses. They had jealousy issues. They had all these other challenges their gods did. But one of the, the temples that, were, that was there uh, in Corinth was to Aphrodite. Now, the Romans called her Venus. But every night, it is said that a thousand prostitutes, male and female, would come down out of the temple into the city to, to, to make money, to worship their God by debasing their bodies. And, and can you imagine growing up in a city where that took place? And it, it, didn't ta- it took place in the streets at night, guys. And so here's this young church, and these, they're going, hey, well, I am free in Christ. My spirit is free in Christ, and what I do with my body doesn't really matter. Remember that whole the, the body doesn't connect to the spirit? And so they thought, and Paul says, you can't not be joining yourself with prostitutes. You can't allow your body to take part in things like that because your body is, is it's, it's different for you as Christians. You can't claim that your body is not connected. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on to tell them, and if you want to go to chapter 6, Verse 18 is where we're going to kind of land a little bit. 
Paul says, listen, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Listen to what he says. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who was given to you by God? Your bodies matter. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, this is just a building. This is not the church. You are the church. This building does not house the Holy Spirit. You house the Holy Spirit. God put the Holy Spirit in you. Your body is not disconnected from what goes on in your spiritual life. I can't go out and sin any way I want to and it not be connected to who I am in Christ. You, when you join with a prostitute, you're joining the Holy Spirit in that. When you go out and you sin, you're taking God with you with that, in that sin. Don't you know your bodies is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, what Paul does in the next couple of words here is he sums up the first part of that letter. With all the challenge this young church was, was suffering and all the sins they had allowed to creep in from their culture into their church, Paul is dealing with it. And here's what he tells them. Do you not know? You are not your own. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You don't belong to you. You were bought with a price. It renders a hammer blow to that constant notion of personal rights, privileges, and it reminds us very carefully that Christ, that we belong to Him and not ourselves. You were bought with a price, and that has implications. When God purchased you from the the slave market of sin, His goal was not a minor tweaking or a little bit of slight service. His aim and demand is for absolute transformation and ownership. Completely. You are not your own. He bought you. He owns you. No conditions. No qualifications. No fine print. You are His. And you weren't just bought. You were bought with a price. And I don't think Paul thought that the Corinthian people were ignorant about how economics worked. If, if you've been bought, there is a price. And I think he understood that. But when he was pointing to something better, bigger, he was pointing to them to the cross. He was pointing to them to the death that Jesus died, to the Son of God. It wasn't just a price. It was a huge price. God came down to earth in the flesh, lived as a perfect man, did no wrong to anyone, only good. And he was beaten and he was bruised and he was hung on a cross where his nails were pounded in his hands and his feet. And the sin of the whole world, yours and mine, was placed on him. And the blood that was shed was shed to wipe away our sins. You were not just bought, but you were bought with a price. And it was a great price. You were not your own. And then Paul says, therefore... That's always important. My seminary professors always say, when you see a therefore, you're supposed to ask what? What's it there for? Right? 
Like I said, Paul is summing up this letter, and he says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your bodies on every level. You belong to him. You don't belong to yourself. You are not the measure of all things. Your body's not just a tomb. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, how are we going to honor God with our bodies? The first way, I believe, is by living a life of purity. Now, when you say purity, by definitions, a lot of times we kind of narrow that down just to sexual purity. But I think it's more than that. I think it's bigger than that. I think about the psalmist in chapter 24 who says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. See, purity is, is bigger than just settling a few things about your, your uh, life with, other, with the opposite sex. It's more than a do's and don'ts. It's, it's about total commitment to God in your thoughts, in your conversations, and in your relationships. It's totally committing to God in every level of your life and remaining pure in Him. Not bending your knee to an idol. What blocks you from being pure? What have you allowed to come into your life? Have you had conversations that you should not have had with people you shouldn't have had them with? Have you allowed thoughts in your head? Have you allowed things to, to get into your mind and to stay in your mind and, you, and you've cultivated those thoughts and you know those thoughts are not good? Have you started a relationship with somebody you know you shouldn't? Living a life of purity. The second way we can do it is on how we treat people. On how we treat people. You know, to me, when we think, I think about treating people, I'm thinking about words. I'm thinking about, do you build people up or do you tear people down with what you say and how you treat people? And listen to me. There's a young church in our town and a young pastor who's being bashed in the public arena. TVs have been bashing them. Radio shows, if you listen to some of them, they just tearing it apart. But let me just warn you, when you go to work and you're having conversations, be very careful because when you take the problems of the church into the public arena and you spend your time bashing other people and tearing other churches down and other ministers for their problems and their challenges, you're not just tearing that pastor down and that church. You're hurting the name of Christ to people who don't know him. And just like Paul was telling this young church, quit taking your problems to the public arena and put it out for the whole world to see. Deal with it within the body of Christ. Quit running your mouth about other people and their problems in public. Quit tearing them down. If we're going to honor God with our bodies, we need to lift people up. We need to build them up. We need to support them. Because you don't know what's going on in their life. And you don't know the challenges they're having. Who would you rather be with? Is somebody when you're with them that when you leave them you, you're worn out, you're beat up, you're torn down, and you feel bad about yourself and just feel horrible about what, who God has made you to be? Or would you rather be with someone who builds you up and makes you excited about the possibilities of what God has for your future? And better yet, 
Are you one of those people? Which one of them are you? James says in chapter 3, With a tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in His image. If we're going to honor God with our bodies, we need to build people up. (laughs) I'm going to read you a poem. I never do poems when I preach. Um, But I, I like this poem, and I like what it said. It's called The Builder. It says, I saw them tearing a building down, a team of men in my hometown. And with a heave and a hoe and a yes and a yell, they swung a beam and a sidewall fell. And I said to the foreman, are these men skilled? Like the ones you'd use if you'd have to build? And he laughed and said, oh, no, indeed. The most common labor is all I need. For I can destroy in a day or two what it takes a builder 10 years to do. So I thought to myself as I went on my way, which one of these roles am I willing to play? Are you going to be a builder or somebody just tears people down? See, we can honor God with how we treat people and how we build people up and how we honor what God has made those people to be. Another way we can honor God with our bodies is by not tolerating evil. I want you to think about that for a second. Where do you tolerate evil in your life? Where is it? What is the place that evil creeps in? And, and I will tell you, I am not a legalist, and I am not perfect. It's hard to not, you can't be a legalist if you're not perfect, right? Otherwise, you just feel guilty about your own, what you believe in your own self, right? Um, I'm not a legalist, and I'm not guilty. And there's too many times I have done things and put things in front of me that should not have been there. But I, I'm going to be honest with you. The things that used to scare me when I was 14 that I thought was so evil on TV, they're now putting in cartoons, Isn't it amazing what we will allow ourselves to watch and what we'll allow ourselves to be a part of? And when you look at the box office, what's out there? And I'll be honest, as a youth pastor, I just get blown away when I hear, I see kids going and watching things that would have given me nightmares when I was their age. And I'm not trying to judge because I I tell you, I'm I'm not perfect. But we have allowed evil and we've tolerated it in small doses and small doses till it grows. My dad came home one day and the cows were stomping the garden. They were just stomping it up, eating it up. And I got in trouble. But I didn't intend for the cows to eat all the stuff in the garden and to stomp it up. But what I did is I left the gate open. And by leaving that gate open, I made it possible for those cows to get out and to destroy the garden. Where have you left the gate open in your life? Parents, where have you left the gate open so your children can, can stumble and fall? And you oh, it's no big deal. They're just kids. Well, hey, at that age, you better be helping them guard their heart and not tolerating evil. C.S. Lewis wrote a book that was one of my favorites growing up, Screw Tape Letters. Most of you probably have heard of it. It's where this senior demon was telling his nephew demon about how best to, to trip people up, Christians up. And so here's a part of that, one of those letters. He says, you will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to keep the man away from the light. 
Murder is no better than wine if wine will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. See, this young culture had taken some of their beliefs that were were evil, and they'd allowed them to come in to their lives and then into the church. But where have you done that? Where have you left the gate open for Satan to get into your life? And then the last one, I think we can honor God with our bodies by um, what we do with what we produce. See, you, you work hard, and you get a paycheck, and then you come home and pay your bills, and then you think, what have I got left to, to, to make it? And I, I'm going to be completely honest. Many, many times it's hard for me to think about us sitting down and writing a check to God and I'm thinking of all the things that we need to pay for and the medicines and, the, and everything that's got to be paid for for the kids and, and groceries. But what that does is it reminds me every time we do and every time I feel that angst, every time Satan tries to tempt me and say, why are you giving this money when you could use it for yourself? You are the measure of all things. Don't forget it. See, I am reminded that the reason I write that check is not that God needs my money. It's that it reminds me that it's his and it's not mine. And the struggle I have may be a struggle of faith, but that's okay. God wants me to have faith in him that he's going to provide, and he always has. See, it's his, and it's a way for him to constantly teach me that it's not about me, but it's all his. I have been bought with a price, and I belong to him. And so, therefore, the body that he's given me and the gifts he's given me and the talents he's given me and the work that I do with those doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. And I think we honor God with our bodies by giving back to him what's already his to start with. And I remember being a young person struggling with that. I, didn't get, I wasn't raised understanding about tithing. So it was very foreign to me. I thought you just come in and threw $5 in the plate and you'd done your duty. But God had to teach me. And he had to show me the importance of it. Just because of the struggle, I learn and I grow and I get stronger. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Will, don't let me hit you in the head. Again. In case you've forgotten the price that was paid. The price that was paid for us was great. And if you're looking for a motivating reason to devote yourself to God afresh today, that's it right there. If you're searching for a reason to get up in the morning, fulfill what God has given you to do, that's your reason. The price that was paid. If you desperately need the strength to love, to serve, to pray, to fight, to forgive, to study, to stand, to preach, to parent, to witness, to endure, to rejoice, that's it. The price that was paid for you and for me. It was a great price. And how quickly as a church we forget the price that was paid for us. And we allow the culture to creep in. And we allow Satan to to use that culture to creep in to make us start thinking, it's all about me. 
It is a battle that's been raging since the garden, and it's a battle that will rage until we all meet God in heaven. But if we're going to honor God with our bodies, because we are not our own, we were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We've got to remember the price. And we've got to submit to it. And we've got to stop pretending like it's not there. And I don't know in your life where it's happened. I don't know if you're struggling with purity in your thoughts, in your relationships, in your conversations. I don't know if you've spent time bashing other Christians in the public arena. I don't know. I don't know if you've tolerated evil to come into your personal life. And you've turned a blind eye to it thinking, oh, it's not going to really affect my Christian walk. I don't know where your struggle is, but I know that the price that was paid for it was great. And it's time as a church that we quit playing games with that and we get serious in our own hearts and we give it over to Christ and we give it to Him and we become the people that He needs us to be to change this generation Or you know what we can do? We can sit back and pretend it's not happening and pretend it's no big deal and pretend, sure, he paid that price, but or we can react and we can respond and we can honor God with everything that we do. So this morning, I want to open up the altar for you. And like I told last hour, I've heard heard the, the arguments I've heard some complaints that this is not an altar. Oh, we don't have a real altar. This is an altar. This is a place where if you're broken, you can come and you can kneel before God in the humbleness and humility in front of the body of believers and you can pray and ask God to forgive you and to strengthen you and to help you. The problem is not the altar and what it looks like and that there's lights up here and there's no little rail to pull yourself up anymore. The problem is that our hearts are so hard that we're not willing to step out and to come down in humility and to kneel before the cross that Christ gave us, the the proof that you were bought with a price and you're not your own. So church, when we honor God, when we submit to Him, and when we go and fight what Satan's trying to do with our church and with our group of believers who God has called to raise up to reach others for him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you so much, Lord, that you have such patience with us. Just like you had patience with this young church this young group of believers. And God, I pray that you would help us, Father, to see the the truth and the power of the price that you paid. God, that you would not let us tolerate the evil that's crept in, that you won't allow us to sit where we are stagnant, but God, that we would move and you would move in us. So Lord, we give it to you today. Open us up. Let us see. In Jesus' name.